Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the program where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, Chris Smith, and with Eva Higginbotham. This week, sending hydrogen to houses through the gas network to cut our carbon footprint. How a high-fat diet could be disrupting your sleep and the Ig Nobel Prizes for science that makes people laugh, then think, are announced. We'll hear who's won what. Plus, in recognition of World Sepsis Day on the 13th, we're unpicking the science of this deadly syndrome right through from the infections that cause it to the genes that make us more susceptible and how artificial intelligence could help us to crack it. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. As we'll hear later in the programme, the world needs to leave most of its coal, oil and gas in the ground between now and 2050 if we're to stand any chance of keeping climate change to within a 1.5 degree Celsius level of average warming. And that includes the UK. But according to a 2021 survey by the UK Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, 77% of respondents said that they do use gas central heating. So, how do we cut our carbon footprint while not leaving three quarters of the country out in the cold? Well, one answer might be to send something different down the pipelines. Hydrogen. When this burns, it releases only water as a waste product. As a first step, if we were to replace some of the natural gas or methane that's in the pipes with hydrogen, and assuming that people's appliances work satisfactorily, we could cut the carbon footprint of the process without having to change anything else. One company has tried this recently, in a small-scale way, with Keele University, and they announced the results this week. I'm Dr Angie Needle. I'm the Strategy Director at Cadent. Cadent is a gas network provider, so we deliver natural gas to 11 million homes and businesses across the UK in those yellow pipes that you see. In this instance, we were exploring how we can introduce a proportion of hydrogen into the existing natural gas network so that we can reduce the carbon emissions of the energy that's used in people's homes. Why can't we just put hydrogen down those pipes rather than natural gas? Because if one looks back in history, before we were using natural gas, we were using town gas or coal gas, and, and that contained a lot of hydrogen. So were we not already kind of familiar with how this works anyway? Yeah, I would agree that that is true. Um, town's gas had up to 50% hydrogen in it. The bits of our gas network will have seen this before, but it's the end user appliances, the boilers and the cookers and the fires that haven't. And so what we want to be sure of when we start introducing hydrogen and people are using a lower carbon gas, that the experience in the home is exactly the same. And that's what this project was looking at, making sure that when we introduce small amounts of hydrogen, 
um, it makes no difference to the appliances and they can continue as, as normal. Where did you do it? So Keele University has got its own gas network. It owns it itself. And so we got together with Keele on their campus, which has got about 100 domestic buildings of all different shapes and sizes, some which the lecturers and whatnot live in and, and some which are privately owned and about 30 university buildings. And so we built a compound there. We made the hydrogen on site and we blended it through what we call a grid entry unit, a new piece of kit into their gas network. Never been done before and massively successful because nobody knew any different. The consumer experience was we didn't even know that this was happening. We couldn't see any changes. How much hydrogen were you adding to the gas supply? We added up to 20%, and that's quite important because most of the cookers and fires and things that are out there today can take up to about 23% in the way that they're built and tested. 20% allows about a 7% carbon emission saving. And is it easy to do, this hydrogen admixture, to put it into the gas supply? Largely, because all we do is we take a bit of the gas out, the natural gas, blend in the hydrogen, make sure it's mixed up really well and put it back into the gas. The main challenge is actually having enough hydrogen and making sure we can we can have low carbon hydrogen to put into the gas network. But the, the first of the kind equipment that we developed, we can see that you can scale and replicate quite easily. So you can start putting in hydrogen at different places in our gas network. And in practical terms, were we to, to start doing this across the country, how much energy is actually being provided by the same volume of gas? Is hydrogen as energy dense as natural gas? In other words, are people going to have to burn more of it to get the same bang for their buck? Yeah, so hydrogen's actually got a huge amount of energy content in it, but it takes up quite a lot of space. It's quite a light molecule. And so what happens is 20% hydrogen by volume is actually only 7% by energy. So we're working at the moment to make sure that the existing pressures that are on our pipes manage can take the extra flow, if you like, of hydrogen. So you'll need to use a bit more hydrogen to get to the same calories or energy as you get today with, with methane. But the most important thing is hydrogen doesn't produce any carbon dioxide. So you would regard the present situation then as a stepping stone towards a full-on 100% hydrogen energy economy? In parts, yes. A 20% blend helps us get the infrastructure and the hydrogen production going. We need lots of hydrogen to get to net zero, almost regardless of what it's used for. And in the UK, we don't make much today. So we need to get production going. But I think there'll ultimately be a blend of different uses of energy in the future, like renewable electricity and hydrogen. And consumers will we need to help them understand whether their home is suitable for electric solutions and, and whether it's suitable for hydrogen so that there is choice. The choice is good because if we put all our eggs in the same basket when it comes to energy. We tend to find that each one has limitations that needs the other to to balance it out. So I'm very much supportive of us having choice, but also that we help consumers make that choice. Interesting idea, isn't it? Angie Needle there.
So that's the good news. The less welcome news that we referred to earlier is that, according to a paper in the journal Nature this week, the world needs to leave a substantial part of its fossil fuel reserves in the ground if we're to stand a chance of curtailing the worst impacts of climate change. Now, in 2015, researchers at UCL estimated these limits. And now Daniel Wellesby is back and he's taken advantage of more recent research and energy consumption trends to improve on that previous study. Harry Lewis asked him what the new figures show. 60% of global oil and gas reserves and 90% of global coal reserves need to remain in the ground. And, you know, in comparison to the 2015 paper, that's nearly a doubling of oil reserves that need to remain in the ground. And globally right now, what does our fuel consumption or production look like? Is it on the rise or is it on, on the decline? It's very regional dependent. So, for example, in Europe and in the United States, you know, we've seen quite considerable scale back in terms of our consumption of coal. But then that's been almost entirely offset by consumption increases in China and India and other parts of developing Asia. You know, there is no indication from fossil fuel producers to scale back production on anything like the scale that we've suggested and the IEA's Net Zero report suggests you know, those trajectories are going up when we need to be going down. Mm. And your model predicts how much fossil fuel a region of the globe can actually extract from its own reserves. So for some of the the big hitters out there, like, like the US, say, what changes in production behaviour do we need to see according to your model? Actually, the US average annual decline rate for gas production is 8%, which is really, really, you know, that's a very, very quick decline. That's what's needed. Yeah, that's that. That's what's required. And what about for the rest of the globe? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think probably for oil and for coal, generally we see the vast majorities of regions have, have reached peak production in, in 2020. So I, I think probably where this really came through in, in the modelling was for gas. So, for example, an average of, of an 8% decline in, in US gas production, and in Europe it's about 7%. That's then offset out to 2030 by production increases in places like the Middle East. So, you know, actually globally between 2020 and 2030, we do have a bit of a plateau, but that's highly dependent on if one region is adding a unit to the global supply, then another region has to more than match that to ensure that the decline pathway is, you know, is maintained. Sure. And if we do make these suggested cuts and we do keep this amount of fossil fuel in the ground it's not 100% guaranteed we prevent ourselves from reaching that 1.5 degree markup in the climate yeah no absolutely it feels like this is a big ask it feels like it's too late to stop this stuff from leaving the ground a lot of this is down to to political will we don't really have any time to (laughs) to you know take another five years discussing reversals of production and things but hopefully what will happen at COP is there will be, you know, a kind of movement towards a degree of transparency in terms of who is producing different oil and gas and coal assets, how much is out there, and trying to develop mechanisms whereby global production is declining. But then really the main or one of the main messages from this work is that those really heavily dependent regions like the Middle East for oil, they're going to have to start to diversify their economies and and there does seem to be some movement on that i'm not sure it's looking particularly rosy 
at the moment in terms of planned projects to come online as well. What are governments putting in place to to try and reduce fossil fuels? Because surely that's the one main thing we can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's um, there are shoots of activity the banning of new petrol and diesel cars or internal combustion engines in in the United Kingdom announced. Denmark refused any new exploration licenses for oil or gas. You know, it, this needs to be taken to another, I'd say, good few levels. What do those, in your opinion, good few levels resemble? What do they look like? In the future, really, you know, it's some form of carbon pricing, which is in place in in some regions at the moment, but need to be expanded globally and kind of ramped up in, in their in their incidence. And I'm sure that will certainly be something they'll be discussing at this year's Conference of the Parties, COP26, the climate change conference due to be hosted in Glasgow in November. And one wonders whether they'll overlook the fact that the UK is busy opening a new coal mine in Cumbria right now. That was Daniel Wellsby speaking with Harry Lewis. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, here on The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Eva Higginbotham, how a tasty but high-fat diet might be disturbing your sleeping habits. Now, something else that might be keeping you up at night is that you've been eagerly awaiting the results of the one of the highlights of the scientific calendar that comes around every year at this sort of time of the year, and that's the Ig Nobel Prizes. Every year, some of the most unusual scientific studies that famously make people laugh but then stop and think win this enormous scientific accolade. With us is the founder of the Ig Nobel Prizes, Mark Abrams, who founded them back in 1991. He over sees the ceremony and he's here to talk us through this year's crop of the cream of scientific endeavour. Mark, you better tell us, for those not in the know, what the Ig Nobels are all about and why you founded this. These are prizes for something unusual. So they may strike you as being important or completely worthless or whatever, but there's more to them than you expect. Uh, We've been doing this, as you point out, for 31 years now. When you set them up, did you did you think you'd be having a conversation with me 31 years later, or at least anyone, about this initiative? I, I, I believe I did not have that very specific wish, but <laughs> generally we hope that it will continue for a long time. We've been very happy to see that uh, it has been and, and we hope will be continuing for quite a while. Now, when you normally run them, because you came to Cambridge once and, and did a presentation during the Cambridge Science Festival on this and uh, made everyone roar with laughter. But you normally do this on stage and people yeah. come to visit you for them. Obviously, that yeah. Norm- hasn't happened because this, of the pandemic. Yeah. Normally, this happens at Harvard University here in the U.S., inside the biggest theater there. Uh, so there are 1,100 people jammed into the audience and winners come, you know, 10 winners a year come from around the world. And we have a bunch of Nobel Prize winners there to shake their hands and everybody's throwing paper airplanes at each other for an hour and a half. But yeah, we couldn't do that because of the pandemic. So last year and again this year, we've done the whole thing online, which is much more complicated, at least in a different way. What sorts of entries have you considered, though? Because obviously that hasn't changed. People are still doing fantastic science around the world, despite the best efforts of coronavirus to thwart science. 
Yeah, we, we still get many thousands of new nominations every year. Let me um, just dive into a few of this year's. One of them was the biology prize, went to a team in Sweden, Suzanne Schutz and her colleagues. They um, analyzed variations in purring, chirping, chattering, trilling, tweedling, murmuring, meowing, moaning, squeaking, hissing, yowling, growling, and other modes of cat-human communication. I think we've actually got a clip of that one. Let's have a listen to her. This is her actually doing the cat noises. Trilling. Meowing. Wow. Squeaking. Wee. Moaning. Wow. Trill meowing, which is a combination. Meow. Howling or yowling. Growling. Hissing. Snarling, chomping, and chattering. I bet she's great fun at dinner parties. <laughs> yes, I bet you're right about that. Um, the other one that caught my eye this year, because obviously it's a microbiologist with an interest in all things microbes, you've got this paper on people looking at what's living in chewing gum. I love that. This is, uh, yeah, this is a team in Spain, in Valencia, Spain, that analyzed chewing gum that they uh, took off pavements in many different countries. And they analyzed what kinds of bacteria are living in those wads of chewing gum. And what did they conclude? Um, it's different. <laughs> that, and, and also that if the gum has been there on the sidewalk for quite a while, if somebody goes and very carefully analyzes that hunk of chewed chewing gum, you can get a sort of history of what was happening there on the bacterial level because it changes from the surface down into the interior about how things uh, progressed during the long period that the gum was living on the sidewalk. <laughs> Any other prizes that particularly stand out? The explosion of uh, press coverage initially seems to center on the prize, the transportation prize we gave to a large international team for some work that they did in Namibia. They did some experiments to try to see whether it's safer to transport an airborne rhinoceros upside down. They were trying to move some of the rhinoceroses, who are growing scarce, you know, from areas where they live now, which are becoming extremely dangerous, to areas a, quite a distance away that would probably be much safer places for them to live. But it's not such a simple thing to transport a rhinoceros. It was too far to do it easily and well by truck. So they were using helicopters. And the question came, how do you do this in a way that's safest for the rhinoceroses? They did some tests and discovered that health-wise, it seems to be um, notably better for the rhinoceroses to be dangled upside down by their legs. Before they did this with the rhinoceroses, they ran a bunch of tests on human beings, on themselves, dangling each other upside down. Uh, I've been on a few flights where it's been uncomfortable and legroom has been an issue. I hope this doesn't give our low-cost airlines any ideas. Possibly you haven't thought this through. Go on. Possibly this is a good idea. <laughs> but did um, they actually do no, the experiment? No, no, Have they actually no, done word, the experiment no, with real possible. rhinos, Mark? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this has been going on for quite a while. And this has become now the standard method for transporting rhinos. And they're also starting to use this as a fairly standard method for transporting other very large animals, elephants, other others. And uh, they have experiments planned for um, possibly giraffes and some, some additional kinds of animals. So this must be one, just in 30 seconds, this must be one wonderful example of how an Ig Nobel Prize winning paper was serious science that has not just made people laugh and think, but also translated into real positive action. Yeah, it's a good reminder that almost all science, when it's in its very first stage, involves just a small number of people doing something that might look kind of crazy to everybody except themselves. I'm going to keep my thinking cap on. We did make a chocolate teapot once. Maybe I'll, I'll send you our manuscript on the making of a chocolate teapot to test whether it really does actually that hold would water. Be so kind of you. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. Mark Abrams from the Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, to be fair, Chris, I don't think I would particularly mind actually being dangled upside down if it was going to give me cheaper flights. Um, to more serious science now, do you like a snack at bedtime? Because I certainly do. And so do rats, apparently at least ones that are allowed to feast on a high-fat diet. And now new research has shown that rats fed on a high-fat diet end up with a broken body clock and they have disrupted eating and sleeping patterns. Cells in the brainstem that would normally make you hungry in the day and then not hungry at night appear to be disturbed by the high-fat diet and there are implications for how we might treat human obesity in the future. I spoke to lead author Lucas Trobock to find out more. In this new study, we found that in rats uh, fed high fat diet, the activity of this brainstem clock is actually severely disturbed. And at the same time, these high fat diet fed rats increase their food intake during the day. So the time these nocturnal rodents should normally spend on sleep and rest rather than, than feeding. So you basically fed some rats a healthy diet, some rats a high-fat diet, and saw that their sleeping behaviour changed. We did not really measure the sleep behaviour, but we measured the food intake around 24 hours. So what we saw in this well-balanced, healthy group, that their food intake was limited to their active phase. And with the high-fat diet fed rats, their food intake was all over the place. So they would eat during their active phase, of course, but they would also eat during their behaviorally quiescent time, which is day for these nocturnal rodents. And how high fat is high fat for a rat? So the standard high fat diet is 70% calories from fat. So it's really high fat diet. Have you tasted it? What does it taste like? I haven't tasted it, but it smells amazing, (laughs) like cookies. (laughs) Amazing. And so when you looked at the actual nerve cells of the brain that are involved in setting the circadian rhythm, did you see that they were behaving differently? Uh, Yes. Normally, under standard, well-balanced diet, this neural activity of the brainstem clock is, is very rhythmic. So during the day, the activity goes up, it peaks at the late day, and then the activity slowly goes down during the night. And in high fat diet, the neuronal activity of this, of this brainstem clock is nearly totally flat. So it does not really distinguish the, the time of the day. That's really amazing. Do you think then that there's something about the fat in the diet that was affecting the clock? Or do you think it was something more about the rat's behavior because they love the high fat food so much? Yes. So we don't know the answer to this question because it either can be the calorie content of the diet itself, the fat that actually 
affects the brain cells, but it also may be a behavior that as a feedback affects the brain. So because of the high tastiness of the food, rats eat it all the time. And then because the feeding pattern actually affects our clock, it just destroys it. And rats are nocturnal, aren't they? So how applicable do you think their circadian rhythm and food intake system is to humans when we're obviously uh, supposed to be up during the day and asleep at night? Yes, so one must be really cautious to extrapolate results from rodents to human. However, with brainstem being so evolutionary ancient, we really hope that this basic clock mechanism may be conserved among species. Do you think any of this could be linked to um, shift workers, so people who are working during the night um, and then sleeping during the day? Definitely. I think it's very relevant to shift work in general. We know that in shift workers, there is high increase of obesity, some kind of cancer and cardiovascular disease. And it is actually now speculated that it is good to lock your feeding patterns to the light-dark cycle rather than to your activity cycle. So if you are a shift worker and you actually work during the night, it would be good for you to even wake up during the day which is a time you should eat and eat during the day. Lucas Trobrock there, and that work was just published in the Journal of Physiology. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. For the rest of the show this week, we're unpicking the science of sepsis in honour of World Sepsis Day on the 13th of September. Sepsis has been known by a lot of different names in the past, through from blood poisoning to septicemia and even blood rot back in the 11th century. But all these terms refer to the same dangerous diagnosis, where the body's exaggerated reaction to an infection causes severe collateral damage to its own organs and tissues – It's a medical emergency, and the World Health Organization estimates that it kills about 11 million people around the world every year. Thankfully, prompt diagnosis and treatment can turn the tables on the condition. Suzanne was a healthy 40-year-old woman who, like many of us, seemed to catch a bit of a cold in the stressful run-up to Christmas three years ago. I just started to just get day by day, just get worse and worse. And I thought I was developing the flu, came round to Christmas Day and I was feeling really, really unwell. But I managed to get to my family, my parents' house for to spend an hour with them when I was meant to be spending the whole day. Um, but I had to go home just feeling really unwell. I was feeling terrible, couldn't sleep. So at four o'clock in the morning, I was Googling symptoms about flu. And I, for some reason, thought, oh, you know, maybe it's not flu. Maybe I've got pneumonia. I quite quickly realised that my symptoms were much more like pneumonia rather than influenza. And the advice was you you must go and see your GP as soon as possible. By this point, she was so weak, her husband had to drive her the 100 metres to her GP's office for her appointment the next morning. 
and she did look a bit concerned I think when she saw me but she put the sensor on my finger that measures your blood oxygen and it was in the 80 something percent which is is not um, good at all and I very clearly remember her words saying I don't mean to alarm you but I will be calling an ambulance and we'll be taking you to the Queen Elizabeth you're not very well and you need to get to hospital as soon as possible. Although Suzanne remembers the GP appointment her memory pretty much goes blank for the next two weeks and she's had to rely on friends and family's descriptions of what happened next. She was rushed to hospital and put in intensive care before being put on a ventilator with her family waiting outside. The consultant came back and said that things had spiralled out of control. I guess at some point in all of that, that's when it became apparent that I had sepsis. I don't really know at what point it was first diagnosed, but um, I was on the ventilator, but my body and, and things had just kind of gone out of control and the oxygen that I was receiving through the ventilator wasn't enough to kind of to sustain me, to keep me going. We'll pick up. Suzanne's story a bit later on in the programme. First, though, let's explore what sepsis actually is and, if you've got it, how do doctors diagnose and treat it. With us is Colin Begg. He's from the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit in Glasgow. What's the strict medical definition, Colin? Um, The strict medical definition is essentially where your body gets an infection, first of all, and then your immune system's reaction to that infection causes damage to your organs. And how would a person who's going down that path know it's happening to them? Well, that's the million-dollar question, Chris, really. The initial signs of sepsis can be quite nonspecific, and what we as medical professionals try to do is separate those people who have sepsis from those people who perhaps just have a bad infection. All sepsis starts with an infection, um, and it's trying to identify those people who are going to progress onto sepsis that is probably the hardest part of of our job at at times. And how quickly is it clear that someone is on that slippery slope from just what could be a trivial infection for most people to life-threatening, overwhelming sepsis in that person? It can be very fast. Sepsis is one of the few conditions in the modern world that can kill a healthy adult in a matter of hours. Globally, it's still the number one cause of preventable death. So um, often we can get an idea within you know, minutes by just looking at somebody's vital signs and certain other simple tests that they are progressing to a more severe case of sepsis. And when we make the diagnosis, do we actually know, right, this person's definitely got sepsis? Or is that more a judgment call on the part of a doctor like you who's putting together various measures and thinking, well, this person's not going in the right direction, they're heading towards this situation? Or are there some clear indicators this person has got sepsis? There are clear indicators, but as I said, those can be quite nonspecific. And what I teach my registrars is that, can they say for certain that this is not sepsis? Because the treatment is really broadly simple measures. And by initiating those measures, you can you can stop the cascade of sepsis very early and prevent people progressing to multi-organ failure, which is what you want to do. So really, it's almost a, a shoot first, ask questions later approach a lot of the time in terms of the simple things we deliver, like oxygen, antibiotics, intravenous fluids. And then it's a question of going back and constantly reassessing the patient. It's one of those situations where expertise can be key. Bringing a senior person in to see the patient can often make a difference. Are there certain groups of patients that are particularly vulnerable to this happening that we need to watch out for? 
Yeah, like many diseases, sepsis affects disproportionately the very young and the very old, particularly the, the sort of preschool toddler infant group and also the elderly, so people over the age of 70. And furthermore, people have got any sort of immune problem. So patients who are immunosuppressed because of cancer, HIV, rheumatological disease, other reasons, they're all more vulnerable to sepsis than the general population. And are there any particular diseases that we associate with sepsis happening more frequently? So if one person is diagnosed with them, we know to watch out. Uh, particularly simple things or things that we think of as simple, like a pneumonia, for example, a chest infection, or also um, certain types of skin infection like cellulitis, certain urine infections. All of those can progress towards sepsis fairly easily, depending on the bug that is involved. And how long does it take for a person to turn the corner? and then recover after a bout of sepsis? Again, that varies. It very much depends on the person's pre-morbid state. You know, if they were healthy beforehand, um, then generally they will recover quicker, but that is not always the case. Uh, sepsis can take a terrible toll, particularly the, the multi-organ failure aspect of it. If you spend a fortnight in ICU on support, that takes a toll on your muscle strength, on your physical ability to, to do simple things like move and breathe. And it can take a long process of rehabilitation from that before you get back to your normal self. And some people say they never fully recover. And what fraction of people don't make it? So globally, the fatality from sepsis varies. In the UK, it's probably in the order of 15 to 25% mortality, which is high. That's in adults. In my own field in paediatrics, our baseline mortality roughly is in the order of 3%. So for every 100 people who come into children's intensive care, uh, sadly, about, about three of them will not make it through. But for sepsis, for the sepsis group, the fatality rate, the mortality is much higher than that, probably in the order of about 10, 15%. It's an important topic and that's why we're discussing it. Colin, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed. That is Colin Begg. And as Colin mentioned, sepsis can arise from all sorts of illnesses. But what about the microorganisms themselves that are causing the initial infection? Andrew Conway Morris is an intensive care doctor specialising in sepsis at the University of Cambridge. You can get sepsis from bacteria. You can get sepsis from viruses. You can get sepsis from fungal organisms. And so really across the range and equally some parasites such as malaria in the severe forms would also meet our definitions of sepsis. In terms of the common organisms that we see, the commonest are certainly bacteria. And again, they come from a range of different types of bacteria. If we split bacteria, broadly speaking, into gram-negative and gram-positive, which is how they stain under, under a microscope, we see common gram-positive organisms such as Staphylococcus aureus, and many of your listeners may have heard of MRSA. Other common organisms would be E. coli and pseudomonas and these are organisms that often we get from the gut or from the urinary tract so it's, it's a pretty broad field of, of organisms and it's a very interesting question as to why you get the sepsis syndrome how much of that is due to the bug and how much of that is, is due to the host response and what is it that the host is responding to when they have an infection with something like e coli so the surface of the microbes, the bacteria and so forth, are covered in molecules. And what the body does, the immune system is able to recognize those patterns and says, this is an abnormal thing that shouldn't be here. And therefore, I'm going to, to launch an attack because it shouldn't be here and it needs to go. 
Now, the key thing with sepsis is that that response is not localized to a specific area, but rather spills out into the rest of the body. And again, why that happens is one of the key questions of sepsis and one that we don't fully understand. There is almost certainly an interaction there between the bacteria and the host's immune system, and some of that will be dictated by the host's own genetic background. Some of it may also be due to the experience of the immune system, whether they've encountered that bug before, and also where in the body it's encountered. So E. coli, one commonly has in one's gut. They live there without causing any harm most of the time. But if they spill out of the gut and they get into, say, for instance, your abdominal cavity, so the space around the gut, or they get into your bloodstream, then your body mounts a very vigorous response to that. And that is probably what triggers sepsis. And does the bacteria or other infective organism want this to happen? Like, is it in the gut trying to burrow through with some, um, you know, tools it might have in its toolkit? Or is that not exactly what it wants? There are clearly examples of organisms that have what we call invasive potential. You get enteroinvasive E. coli, so that's E. coli that would invade through the wall of, of the bowel, or you get invasive streptococcal disease where you have a streptococcus pneumoniae, say causing pneumonia, and that spreads into the bloodstream or sometimes into the central nervous system causing a meningitis as well as a pneumonia. And some of that will be due to virulence factors carried by those bacteria that have the potential for invasion. But some of it, again, is probably also down to the host response. If the area where the bacteria are becomes leaky and your barrier defences break down, then that again allows those bacteria that have the potential to cross to cross into areas where they shouldn't be. Can you always figure out when you're treating someone for sepsis what the microorganism was that caused the reaction? So no, in fact, it's very common, probably in around 50 to 60% of cases of infection that present hospital, we can't identify the infecting organism. In a relatively small proportion, that will be because we got the diagnosis wrong. But most of the time, it's because our tests for infecting microorganisms are just not very good. They are based on technology developed originally by pioneers such as Louis Pasteur over 100 years ago, and they rely on the growth of bacteria. And in order for the bacteria to grow, they need to be in the right conditions. And also the patient needs to have not have been given antibiotics that suppress the growth of bacteria. And of course, you must give antibiotics early. And so it is very common not to be able to identify the infecting organism. This is changing. Technology is coming that allows us to identify organisms without relying on growth. So we can use molecular tests, things like PCR, polymerase chain reactions, which allow you to detect genetic material and doesn't rely on growth. But those tests are not yet widely available for bacteria. They're widely implemented for viruses, and that's exactly what we use for respiratory viruses and SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID. But for bacteria, they're not that well developed. And we're forced to rely on broad spectrum empiric antibiotics, so antibiotics that we pick because they're likely to cover the organisms we think will be there. And clearly that comes with risks of breeding resistance, of using antibiotics with a broader spectrum than we need to, possibly for longer than we need to. And there really is an urgent need for diagnostics in this area to allow us to rationalise our antibiotic therapy to minimise the use of antibiotics and, and preserve them because they're a precious resource. 
An important message there. That was Andrew Conway Morris from the University of Cambridge. Now this week we are unpicking the science of sepsis and we've just heard that it's an immune overreaction to infection that ultimately culminates in the body effectively shooting itself in the foot and damaging its own tissues, sometimes with fatal effect. This is nearly what happened to Suzanne, who we heard from a bit earlier. After the ventilator in Glasgow wasn't enough, Suzanne ended up being transferred through the night by a team of off-duty doctors and nurses to a hospital in Aberdeen who could deliver specialist treatment which she thankfully responded well to, despite being in liver and kidney failure already. Once back in Glasgow and doing better, her sedation was lifted. The sedation was lifted when I came off the ventilator and it was, you know, trying to understand, you know, what had happened. I'd, two weeks of my life had kind of disappeared and I couldn't understand why I'd been in Aberdeen and, uh, you know, what was going on. But And then it was just kind of trying to recover from that and being in intensive care and just lying in a bed for, for two weeks, you, you lose a lot of your muscle mass. So it was, you know, I thought I could just stand up and get out of bed, but it took uh, three or four physios to, to get me standing for the first time. Full recovery to full fitness was, was probably about a year, but I did go back to work on a phased return after about four months. Um, It's amazing what one small pathogen can do, or a few small pathogens. You know, I think that's the thing with sepsis, that so much of it is misunderstood, not misunderstood, it's, it's just not understood, you know, why sepsis happens with one person and not another person. And as Suzanne said, that is the key question. How an infection that's relatively trivial for one person can cause a lethal, catastrophic reaction in another. And some of that difference might be down to differences in our DNA. Kenneth Bailey studies the role of genetics in sepsis at the University of Edinburgh. So, Kenneth, can you tell us first, how is your immune system generally influenced by your genes? Well, your genes provide the code from which the whole of your immune system is created. So everything in your immune system is potentially altered by your genes. And how much variation is there between people's immune systems due to DNA? Because, of course, people's immune systems change all the time just from being in different parts of the world, being exposed to different infections, etc. Yes, and you'd think that um, if you get an infection that... um, Uh, The reason that's happened is because you've been exposed to a bug and that's what's causing you to become sick. But in fact, the degree of sickness you get is very strongly influenced by your genes. So in the 1980s, a group of scientists looked at people who were adopted in Scandinavia and found that if your adoptive parent died young of an infection, and remember that's the person who brought you up, who you called mum or dad, and, and who may even have coughed on you during their final illness, you're no more likely to die of an infection yourself if your adoptive parent died of one. But if your biological parent, someone you might never have met in your entire life, died of an infection, then you're six times more likely to die of an infection yourself. And is that then, that amazing statistic, is that then because your DNA has the code for making your white blood cells and the other cells that play important roles in your immune system? Yes. So the immune system is an incredibly complex system, probably second only to consciousness in the in the level of complexity in the body. And of course, consciousness hasn't had to change since it first evolved, whereas your immune system changes the threats that it has to fight um, with each new generation of organisms. So it's become an incredibly complicated system. The other thing that, that makes it complicated is that the organisms themselves, the bugs that, that infect us, 
directly interfere in the function of your immune system. So if there's a vulnerability in it, the bugs find it. So trying to understand that system um, has been a, a colossally difficult challenge. And so you've been looking, trying to understand the link between people's genetics and sepsis. What have you been doing and what have you found so far? We've been trying to use genetics to understand that system to really as a kind of shortcut to, to find the components of, of the immune system that change the outcome for the patient. And the reason, of course, we want to find those is because we want to find parts of the system that we might be able to change with a, with a drug treatment. To do that, we need to compare DNA from the right people, patients who are unfortunate enough to become desperately sick with sepsis and, and need care in, in intensive care units, and compare them to the rest of the population to find out what specifically in their DNA, what in their genes is different about them that's led to them becoming so desperately sick. And have you identified any differences in the genes so far? We found many differences in genes relating to COVID, but not in sepsis yet. So sepsis is a very difficult challenge. I think, as Andy hinted at in his interview, the definition of sepsis is very, very broad. So it's really hundreds of different diseases. And so in order to tackle that problem using genetics, we're going to need to recruit very, very large numbers of patients. In fact, we've recruited many more patients with COVID into our studies than we have so far managed to recruit with sepsis. And, and of course, the reason for that is that Intensive care medicine all over the world for the last year and a half has been very dominated by huge numbers of patients with COVID. So seeing as your genetics has such an influence on your immune system, does that mean then that if you develop certain illnesses like sepsis or COVID, that you just have a sort of weaker genetically defined immune system? Well, not always. There are immune deficiency diseases that often present in childhood in which part of the immune system is, is broken and you know, the patient is born with, with that problem. But what we're teasing apart in COVID and sepsis is more the genetic tweaking of the immune system to make it better at one thing and worse at another. So the, the mantra in evolutionary biology is that adaptation comes at a cost. It's likely that the patients that we are seeing who are genetically susceptible to COVID or sepsis are probably resistant to something else. And we do have examples of that. So, for example, um, in HIV, there was a group of sex workers in Africa who were exposed to HIV and never got it. And many of them were found to have a specific genetic mutation that made it hard for the virus to get into their cells. And that exact mutation that made them resistant to HIV made the same people susceptible to a different virus called West Nile virus and in fact a couple of other viruses. So those those sort of patterns probably exist across the whole immune system. So how then could a better understanding of the genetics lead to better outcomes for patients? How might this work in practice? The effect of a gene is sometimes a bit like the effect of a drug. So it changes the way a bit of your immune system behaves at a molecular level and in some cases we understand those mechanisms a bit. So where we find those sorts of signals, where we find a gene that changes your chance of becoming desperately sick with COVID or sepsis, and we've got some understanding of the biology, the molecular interactions that that gene has, we might be able to design treatments that will have the same effect, the effect of preventing or ameliorating critical illness. And we've, we've come quite close to doing that in COVID. There are two treatments that were inspired, at least in part, by genetic evidence that we provided early in the outbreak from a large study in, in intensive care units in the UK that are now being tested in the recovery trial. 
we don't have answers yet, but there's evidence from other trials that they might be effective. Brilliant stuff. Goes to show the importance of this genetic work, even when working on something that might, on the face of it, seem to be quite different. Thank you very much. That was Kenneth Bailey from the University of Edinburgh. Now, Kenneth is looking at the DNA that we're born with to try and find patterns that can predict who might develop sepsis, who might be more at risk. Our next guest is also looking for patterns, but this time in how people's bodies are reacting to infections so that we can pinpoint perhaps the best way to spot the signs, the danger signals early and intervene in the right way at the right time in just the right people. And he's using artificial intelligence to help him to do that. Anthony Gordon is at Imperial College London. How are you doing this? So we're um, trying to tackle this in a couple of ways. One is looking in the blood at um, what we call the gene expression, the message that comes from the DNA that Kenny's been talking about that tells the body how to respond. And we're looking for patterns in that so that if there are different patterns of how a patient is responding, we may then offer different treatments to those individuals. In essence, then, when someone's immune system is reacting, if they're going down the pathway that looks like they're developing sepsis, there will be different patterns of genes being turned on and off as their immune system goes into this metabolic tailspin. And you're, you're saying, well, can we spot those? That's right. You've been hearing from the other speakers that it's a very complex system. So we're looking for these patterns and we're sort of seeing that now that maybe some patients uh, have a lot of inflammation. And if we can spot that pattern, they may benefit from anti-inflammatory treatments. And there may also be patients who where their immune system is overwhelmed. And in, in fact, they're a bit immune suppressed and they need a boost to their immune system to help them fight any further infection. So that's the hope that we can actually take these very non-specific signs that we usually use uh, to diagnose patients and actually say, no, they're not always the same and we can tailor our therapies appropriately. What sorts of signals can you bring to bear with your solution and how does AI help? These patterns, I mean, that you look for clusters in the data that you as a human can't see, but the computers can look for, for these patterns. Then if it's something biological like uh, the gene expressions, you can go back and try and understand the biology and maybe develop new therapies. What we're also looking at, though, is how can AI help us improve the current therapies we're doing? So, again, we've used large databases, many tens of thousands of patients and using artificial intelligence where a computer looks at all the decisions made by hundreds of doctors uh, treating all these patients and worked out therapies that we use all the time, things like fluid and what we call vasopressors drugs that help boost the blood pressure, just looking at which were the best treatments that were offered for all these patients and try and again spot those patterns and then actually offer a sort of aid to doctors to help them just optimise all of these uh, many decisions they make in an intensive care unit. Obviously, the big hope is that we can follow the old medical mantra of prevention's better than cure, always. Are there any signals that you can tap into that warn us early a person's going in the wrong direction and we can therefore effectively change the course for them before they end up in the hands of people in the intensive care unit? Yes, that's the hope that if you can detect these things earlier... And even if we can't diagnose the infection yet because it takes a while to grow bugs in a laboratory, 
the body has recognized that there's an infection, it mounts its immune system uh, response. And if we can tap into that and use the body's own early warning systems, we could intervene earlier and hopefully prevent what may be a simple infection becoming a more severe case of sepsis. And is it working? I think we're making good progress in that. Like all these things, it takes time to to develop. But we've now got the diagnostic devices, these sort of PCR tests that Andy mentioned that we use currently for COVID to detect viruses. Hopefully you can change literally the cartridge that fits in the device. Instead of looking for virus DNA or RNA, look for the patient's DNA and RNA. And we can do that rapidly. The technology exists to do it in less than an hour. And that's the sort of work we are testing at the moment, making sure it's safe before we bring it into the health system. Because obviously, just in 30 seconds, agility and speed must be everything here because people can deteriorate so quickly when they go down that slippery slope of sepsis. Yeah, you need a combination of experienced staff and also if we can use these new technologies, which will be much quicker, I think this can help all clinicians make better decisions and treat patients more effectively and hopefully improve their outcomes. That's Anthony Gordon. Thank you very much. He's from Imperial College London. So hopefully that gives you a bit more insight into what the question of sepsis is, this diagnosis that we sometimes unfortunately see written on things like death certificates or diagnoses when people are going into hospital, a term that was foreign to many, including many doctors, but is increasingly being used. But thankfully, thanks to hopefully some of the initiatives that you've heard about on the programme this week, we're fast approaching a way to chase them down and stop them. And finally, time for a change of tack with question of the week. Cameron Voisey is shedding some light on this question from Muster Mark. What happens to the lost energy when the shorter wavelength, higher energy light toward the blue end of the spectrum is shifted into lower energy red wavelengths? Waves are just one way in which energy can be transferred from one place to another. Whether that's light waves lighting up your room, or sound waves taking my voice into your ear. You may be aware that waves, like light and sound, can stretch. Listen to this for example. As the ambulance moves away from us, the siren seems to slow down, which means the sound waves appear stretched. This is the Doppler effect, and the same thing happens with light. We say that it redshifts, since the light loses energy and becomes more red. But in Mark's question, something slightly different is going on. The stretching he mentioned is because our universe is expanding. As space expands, so too does the light within it, stretching it and so losing energy. So, where does all this energy go? I spoke to Enrico Paia, a cosmologist from the University of Cambridge, to find out. This is an excellent question, and in fact one which, in one form or another, is often a source of heated debate among practitioners. So many of us are familiar with the idea that energy is conserved. It may change from one form to another, but we know that when we add up all forms of energy, well, the grand total does not change with time. For example, when you boil a kettle, electrical energy from your home is converted into thermal energy to heat up the water. The total energy does not change. So, what does the light's lost energy convert into then? So the short answer to the question is that, in fact, energy is not conserved in an expanding universe such as ours, And so the energy that is lost by light, as it shifts its frequency to the red, simply disappears. So the idea that energy can't be created or destroyed doesn't actually seem to apply to our universe on its biggest scales. James Ferguson, 
another cosmologist at the University of Cambridge, explains why. The conservation of energy can be shown mathematically to be a consequence of assuming something called time translation invariance. This just means that we expect the laws of physics to be the same tomorrow as they were today. However, in an expanding space, the background isn't constant in time, so time translation invariance is broken and the energy conservation doesn't hold in quite the same way. Because our universe is expanding, the universe looks different from day to day, and so too do our cosmological experiments. Standard energy conservation disappears. So the answer to Mark's question? Light does lose energy as the universe expands, but that's okay. Regular rules about not losing energy as light is stretched don't hold in our expanding universe, and instead, cosmologists can consider space-time as a whole to absorb the energy. This restores a conservation principle, but not perhaps as we knew it. Thanks to Enrico and James. Next week, we're itching to get you the answer to this question from Margaret. Have frogs been seen scratching an itch? So if you know the answer to whether amphibians itch, hop to it and tell us. You can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also use that address to send us any new questions you've been pondering. And there we must park it for this week. Thank you very much to Eva who put the programme together and do be sure to tune in next time when we're going to do a show all about the menopause. Now this affects half the population but it's something that rarely gets discussed. So what happens during the menopause? Why do we have a menopause? And how can we manage the symptoms and lead a healthier postmenopausal life? Find out next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and from all of us here at the team. Goodbye. Goodbye.